0: Good morning. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, number 91, verses 1 through 6 and 14 through 16. It can be found on page 930 in your pew Bible, if you would like to read along. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. And our gospel lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. You can find it on page 1,626 in your pew Bible. And this is yet another parable that Jesus is offering to those gathered with him. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Friends, this is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: One of my um, favorite memories as a kid growing up, you know, we didn't have television in my house. I grew up (laughs) literally at the end of the world. Now, some people say that, you know, hyperbolically. I grew up at the end of the world. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that we got uh, a television that had little rabbit ears on it. And we would take tinfoil and scrunch it up on top of the rabbit ears. Um, And then on a good day, you might get PBS. So I remember uh, in, in lieu of television, sitting at home on a Saturday night and listening to Prairie Home Companion. Are any of you familiar with that? Oh, I love Prairie Home. Garrison Keillor, News from Lake Wobegon. Um, uh, what was it where the, where, the, the, where, the, where the men are good looking and the women are above average? It was uh, one of my favorite. It was this little town in Wisconsin, and they were imbued with a spirit of Lutheranism, and everything um, uh, was just really, really wonderful. So uh, Garrison Keeler one time offered this on his radio program. It was called On Those People, called Methodists. And I've been around Methodist churches long enough to know that there are some common strands. To Methodism, that I think we can relate to and we can identify and see us in this. So I just want to share this with you uh, for a moment. This is makes me laugh. We make fun of Methodists for their blandness, their excessive calm, their fear of giving offense, their lack of speed, and also for their secret fondness for macaroni and cheese. Lisa, I'm looking at you. You make a great macaroni and cheese. Nobody sings like them. If you were to ask an audience in New York City, a relatively methodist list place, to sing along on the chorus of Michael, row your boat ashore, they would look at daggers at you as if you had asked them to strip down to their underwear. But if you do this with Methodists, they would smile and row that boat ashore and up on the beach and down the road. Many Methodists are bred from childhood to sing in four-part harmony, a talent that comes from sitting on the lap of someone singing alto or tenor or bass and hearing the harmonic intervals by putting your little head against that person's ribcage. It's natural for Methodists to sing in harmony. We're too modest to be soloists and too worldly to sing in unison. (laughs) By our joining in harmony, we somehow promise that we will not forsake each other. I do believe this, people, these Methodists who love to sing in four-part harmony are the sort of people you could call up when you're in deep distress. If you're dying, they will comfort you. If you are lonely, they will talk to you. If you are hungry, they will give you a tuna casserole. (laughs) Methodists believe in prayer, but would practically die if asked to pray out loud. Now, I haven't experienced that here. I think St. Paul's is an exception. Methodists will usually follow the official liturgy and will feel it is their way of suffering for their sins. You know you're a Methodist if when you watch Star Wars and they say, may the force be with you, you instinctively respond, and also with you. Methodists think that the Bible forbids them from crossing the aisle while passing the peace. Methodists believe in miracles and even expect miracles, especially during their stewardship program or when passing the plate. Methodists believe their pastors will visit them in the hospital, even if they don't notify them that they are there. You know you're a Methodist when it's 100 degrees outside with 90% humidity, and you still serve coffee after the service. You know you're a Methodist when it takes at least 10 minutes to say goodbye. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this warm-hearted congregation, for friends and family gathered together, coming from uh, wherever we may come from, bringing with us all that we bring, but finding here unity in Jesus Christ and love and fellowship with each other. God, we give you thanks that you are here with us even now. You desire to, to call us even more deeply into yourself, that we might know you more fully that we might love you in this world and share that love with others. God, move in us today. Speak to us. Give us a word that we might love you and we might love others. For we pray in Christ's name, the one who loved us first. Amen. I have a friend who's fond of saying that the chief sin, it seems, in the church these days is ignorance. Now think of that word, and I'm going to pronounce it a bit differently in a moment, and I think you'll understand this person's point. In the word ignorance, what are the words that you see? Ignore. Ignore. So when my friend says that, often kind of catches people off guard. Ignorance. When we use the word ignorance, we might think ignorant, or someone who's foolish, or maybe not too bright. He says... What I mean is the chief sin in the church is ignorance. ignore I'm not sure there has been in America a more comfortable time to be the church. It's so easy to slip into complacency. And this has become so stark to me, so clear, when we see news about what the church goes through in other parts of our world. In certain Islamic countries, to be baptized is in effect to sign your death warrant. You go to places like China, where the, where the church has to meet in secret. You can't imagine doing what we're doing here this morning. Where you freely got out of bed, came in through these doors. We can worship without fear of reprisal. It's not like that in other countries. I think of those incredible saints, and I use that word in its fullest meaning. Those Egyptian Coptic Christians who refused to deny Jesus, and ISIS led them out to a river, beheaded them all, because they refused to recant their belief in Jesus. Complacency is bred in the church, it seems. And in a church where things can be comfortable, it can be easy to be complacent and then to become ignorant, blind to, not seeing the need of those around us. You go to places, friends, like China and the Middle East, and places where being a Christian means life or death. And you see the church not only on fire in their witness for God and to Jesus Christ, but through the Holy Spirit, serving the poor around them, meeting the the real needs of people in their community. They're not complacent. They're not ignorant of the need around them. What a model for us. should be convicting to us. Those are places, friends, it seems when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow Me, And when those people do it, they know what they're getting into. We've been confronted week after week with stories from the Gospels that should make us uncomfortable. Someone has often said that the Bible should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And these parables afflict me. And perhaps you've felt a bit of that affliction over these past weeks as we've been reading these words of Jesus that are pointed toward the Pharisees. But let's not get caught up on the Pharisees. Maybe none of us were trained like the Pharisees and hold that particular religious office. But I think we can substitute good religious people for Pharisees. And these Scriptures convict each one of us. See, if you recall, last week I talked about the importance of context. And these two chapters, 15 and 16 of Luke's Gospel, flow out of a particular context. Pharisees criticizing Jesus because He welcomes sinners and He eats with them. And so Jesus gives this, these long, uh, te- this long set of teachings in, in the form of parables in response to those grumblings from these good religious people. And here we have the last one in this set of parables That are in response to that context, that situation. So we have this rich man. Maybe you've heard him called DiVes. That's just Latin for rich man. DiVes or the rich man and Lazarus, and here they are. And what what a stark contrast! What a difference between these two men in their lives and. Things that happened to them. Here was Lazarus, a beggar, poor, sick, infirm, sitting outside the rich man's palace, hoping just to be fed with scraps that go to the dogs. And the rich man, guilty of the sin of ignorance, he doesn't see him. In his lavishness, in his comfortability, in his posh life, he's become ignorant of the need of those around him. And so at that great reckoning, when they both die and they both go to the afterlife, Lazarus is in heaven with Abraham. The rich man is in Hades. And he finally seems to see Lazarus. But do you notice in something that Amanda read in this parable? even though they've now gone into the afterlife where ostensibly their eyes are open to reality, to God and God's truth and ultimate destiny, the rich man still expects Lazarus to serve him. So in his ignorance, he's learned to treat people in a particular way. And even when he's dead in the afterworld, he still expects Lazarus to serve him. Have Lazarus dip his finger in some water. Cool my tongue. I'm tormented. And then, of course, Abraham sort of speaking on behalf of Lazarus and, and responding to the rich man. Uh, they have this conversation. And you notice at the end here, this rich man says, Have someone go and tell my family about this place. And he says, Listen, it's in the Scriptures. It's in the prophets. It's in the law. And we as Christians on the other side of these events in Luke should hear what Jesus says with particular urgency. Even if someone rises from the dead, they would not believe. Well friends, we serve a Savior who rose from the dead. And yet do we believe? Do we see Do we understand what it is that God has called us to do? That's the question before us. I think, friends, we're also meant to see this parable in contrast to the parable of the prodigal son or the man who had two sons that that is earlier in chapter 15 of Luke. The prodigal has gone off On his own way. He's demanded the inheritance. He's taken it. He's squandered it. And in that speech, he rehearses to himself. He he wants to satiate himself on the pods, that is the scraps that the pigs were eating. But he couldn't do that. and So he's hungry. He goes back to the Father. Here, Lazarus wants to do what? He just wants to feed himself on the scraps that the dogs were eating. But he doesn't even get that and yet Lazarus though we're meant to see something of Lazarus that perhaps even in his physical his physical lack he doesn't have food he's physically distressed but there's something about his his spiritual nature his spiritual state he goes to the bosom of Abraham which was understood in Judaism as the place of ultimate rest that was paradise to be be reunited, united with the patriarchs. Lazarus goes there. And where does the youngest son go? He goes back to the father. Even though he does it out of self-interest, he goes back to the father and the father runs to him and receives him. All through these parables, all through these teachings, it's a study in contrast. And we're meant to see in this parable, we're meant to locate ourselves somewhere in these characters. And we're given these hints again and again and again. Between people who see their need, and therefore see the need of those around them, and the people who are blind to it. People motivated by... Self-interest by good religious dogma are the ones presented as the ones ignorant of the real human need and suffering around them. Over and over in the Gospels, not just in this section of Luke, but throughout the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels, we see again and again Jesus indicts the religious leaders for their lack of care for the poor and the needy. We see it again and again and again. We see this in the prophets which are alluded to in our Gospel reading. What is the chief concern of the prophets of the Old Testament? How people are treated. The poor, the sick, the orphan, the widow. Goodness, read the book of Amos. You will not find a harsher indictment toward good religious people who have forgotten, who have become ignorant of the need around them. That beautiful Scripture in Amos where God speaking through Amos says, I want justice to roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And how do we see righteousness and justice? How is that lived out? Go to the prophets and what do they say? It's when the the poor are taken care of, when the widows are welcomed, when the orphans are provided for. And when a people, in that case, Israelites, the nation of Israel, in our case, the church, when we forget to do that, when we become blind to the need around us, when we become ignorant, We see the pattern all through Scripture is that that is what invites God's judgment. That is what God is so passionate about. Is for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, the one who had no place to lay his head. When we who claim to follow Jesus forget what it means to live that out, to follow Him, to love those around us, to serve the needy, to serve the poor. How easy it is, friends, to adopt the spirit of the age and become judgmental toward people who are different than us. To, to see people who are, who are sick or hurting or poor, those who um, are, are, are without a family, those who are without friends, and to, and to judge them, to say, oh, they must have done something to bring that on themselves. How many of you have heard something like that? Maybe you, and like me, have been guilty of offering that very judgment. In Jesus' day, it was no different. It was very likely that someone like Lazarus, the one in this story, he was understood to be in that condition because of something he had done or something that his family had done. And so that judgment was passed on to him, perhaps through his family, and it resulted in him living in that sort of condition. And that was often how good religious people seemed to shirk their duty of loving their neighbor as themselves. It must have been something that he did. It must have been his own sin as a way of absolving them from responsibility toward the weak, the needy, and the broken. There was a meme that made its way around Facebook and social media several years ago. It was a picture of a man who seemed really destitute, perhaps a a man who was homeless, and then there was a little story that followed that picture. And it was about a man, and this is actually a... Um, I think it's one of those things, you know, as things are shared on Facebook, it's kind of like a game of telephone. But I actually did find that this is actually rooted in a true story. Now, perhaps some of the details changed, and they'll probably change even now as I try to tell this from memory. But it actually is rooted in a, in a real story. It was a man, and it was a non-denominational church, Somewhere, I believe in Texas. And um, this church had called a new pastor. The leadership was excited that morning to introduce the pastor to the congregation. Well, there was this gentleman that came into worship and he sat near the front and didn't look that great. Maybe smelled a little bit. Had an unkempt beard. Didn't have the freshest clothes on. Well, the church leadership asked him to move. He says, uh, maybe you could go in the back. You know, we're introducing our, our new pastor today and, and he'll, he'll, he'll probably sit up here with his family so maybe you can move to the back. So the man complied. He did that. And went and sat in the back and, and noticed as, as people were filing into church excited to meet their new pastor, uh, people were kind of noticing him and then making sure they, they could find a seat far away. It was very clear that his reception was, uh, was not welcome and in some cases, outright hostile. Well, it came time in the service, the band played, and they, uh, the leadership talked about their pastoral search, and they were going to introduce the new pastor, uh, but they were also a little bit concerned because they hadn't seen him that morning. But they were moving ahead with the worship service anyway. And they uh, said, well, you know, um, we want to introduce our new pastor, and they, they shared his name with the congregation. And there in the back, this gentleman, who looked fairly disheveled and unkempt, stood up, walked down the middle of the aisle, came up on the stage and introduced himself to the congregation. Apparently it was silent. It was quiet. Boy, that's a bold move, isn't it? That's a bold move. Talk about making a first impression. But friends, I know a bit about that story and what I've read that that fundamentally changed The DNA of that congregation. Where before people had been ignorant, they were convicted by the point that this pastor made. They started to see the hurt around them. Their eyes were opened up to the need that was in some instances right outside their doors. And perhaps after having brushed the embarrassment off themselves, they decided that they would be a church That would serve the poor that would find out where the need in the community was and find ways to meet that need because they realize this that when we do that we show the world something about this God we claim to serve something about this Jesus we say we follow it's one thing to say it with our lips friends Brendan Manning, a great Catholic priest and hero of mine, said that the the single greatest cause of atheism in all the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their words and then walk out the doors of the church and deny him by the way they live. Woo! It's convicting. That's convicting. Friends, if we could distill something that Jesus says in these parables, and these teachings we've been looking at, coming out of this context, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I think we can take away this. We can come here to church. We can be as good and religious as we can be. We can say all the right things. But we see over and over again, Jesus wants to see how and where we show up. Whether we not only proclaim Jesus with our mouths, but by our deeds, by our actions, where our feet go, where our hands take us, whether we're actually serving this Lord we claim to follow. That's my hope, friends, here at St. Paul's. That we become a church that's known by people outside these walls. People who've maybe never even heard of Jesus yet. But they know that, that this is a place where people care. Where people love for each other. Where there's a need, St. Paul's will show up. Where there is hurt, we'll come together. Just like Garrison Keillor said about those good Methodists. We can comfort the afflicted. When people are lonely, we'll show up and visit them. When people are needy, We'll show up with a word of encouragement and a helping hand. When people are hungry, we'll feed them. Desmond Tutu said that to a hungry person, the gospel is a loaf of bread. Friends, when we show up and when we meet people's needs, they see Christ in us. And what an opportunity we then have to show them a Jesus who wants to nourish them physically and Spiritually. Let's not be complacent. Let's not be ignorant. Let's not be like the rich man who had Lazarus just outside his door and didn't see the need that was right there. Let us ask Jesus to show us what it is that He is requiring of us. Amen.